Thank you, God, for your presence here in joyful sound and wiggles and in the acknowledgement that these children are learning to love you. What a powerful message. And we, uh, we see that and we taste it even this morning. Thank you for being present. And, and we give this message to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I stood in line on a Friday morning. I was ordering a hot drink and the clerk behind the counter who I'd come to know, asked me if I had any plans for the weekend, and I said, not really, and she pressed, nothing, nothing at all, come on. And I said, no, I'm not really, just going to church tomorrow. Tomorrow, you must be one of those Adventists, she said, one of them, whatever, whatever that is, right? You don't know if her stories are negative, if they're positive, I just know I'm one of them now. Yes, I'm one of them. She said, well, you know, I didn't know much about the Adventists until recently my grandma's church rents from the Adventists. So could you tell me, what's the big difference between you and most Christians? I looked behind me where a line was gathering. I thought, this really can't be happening now. I, I looked around the room, people are listening, I could hear the music coming over, the, which really wasn't Adventist, and the drink I'm about to consume wasn't totally, authentically Adventist. <laughs> so tell me, what do, you, what do you believe? What we say next matters. That airtime, how we fill it, matters tremendously when people come with, with these defining, pivotal, pivotal, seeking questions. What comes out of my mouth next matters tremendously. And if you're following along in the curriculum, the four weeks of just walk across the room, this next week, that's the conversation. Do you know what to say when that question is asked? How do you fill that air time? And have you thought about it? Because ultimately, if you are busy engaging people, non-Adventist, non-Christian folks, they could be your colleagues or family members, they could be people in the community, they could be those at the bank or at the person who mows your lawn, anywhere you're having contact and people begin to get into relationship with you, which was discussed two weeks ago, when they begin to trust you, at some point they may ask the question, tell me about your God. And just walk across the room, people need to have something to say. In the Gospel of John, we'll, we'll open that again this morning, where we've been for the last three or four weeks. There are, what some scholars say, two groups of disciples. The actual disciples, those who are named at the beginning and called by Jesus, who are committed, and they sort of drop out of the story, come back about chapter 12, where then all of the speeches and conversation from Jesus goes, goes uh, sort of exclusive with these committed disciples, the actual disciples, from chapter 12 to the end of the Gospel of John. But at the beginning of the Gospel of John, from, verse, from chapters 1 to 12, there's another group of characters, several of them who have extensive conversations with Jesus. They're thought of as potential disciples, people, people contemplating. If you start in chapter 3, Nicodemus is the first one. You know that story well where he comes in the middle of the night, but we never really know. Does, does he seek all of his life or does he make a commitment 
Move to chapter 5. There's a man laying by a pool. He believes there's divine healing powers. He's hoping for a healing because he's paralyzed. And he gets a healing, but he slips away and we never hear of him again. Did he choose Jesus or not? Move to John chapter 9. Another man born sick. This one is blind. And Jesus seems to make a sort of a showcase out of him as he heals him in a very public way and this man is interrogated twice by religious authorities he comes to a full conviction a full confession I was blind but now I see we know those famous words we relate to these potential disciples because they're so much like us we can see ourselves in them they question and they wonder and they're not so quickly persuaded each of them with a different outcome the potential disciple that I want to speak about what the children read about is in John chapter 4 the Samaritan woman at the well Jesus speaks to her in the daylight which is scandalous enough but as the conversation unfolds she goes from this sort of ignorant politeness to a transformation those of you following along in the curriculum and in your small groups you'll read Bill Heibel spends time on the woman at the well mostly for how Jesus has his conversation with this woman as an example of what, what significant spiritual conversation looks like, how it is to stay patiently with people until they reach the tipping point and make a decision. Jesus models that with this woman, but I'd like to look at something else with this woman. I'd like to follow her all the way through from her commitment with Jesus. To, to the end where the text tells us she goes out for of all of the potential disciples, she seems to have this profound impact in her community that none of the rest have. We read, many were persuaded because of this one woman. What is it about this one woman? John chapter 4, if you go down to verse 28, Jesus is in trouble already because he's been spending time with her and his disciples are are. Uh, scolding him and asking him why are you doing this in verse 28 she puts her pots down which is a visual cue for us that something has really happened in her world she drops her pots and she runs back verse 28 to her town and said to the people come see a man who told me everything I ever did could this be the Christ they came out of the town and they made their way toward him verse 39 Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. I'll make some assumptions quickly that the woman knows her neighbors well, that they live in a village that probably lives in a communal environment. They're into each other's business. They're all friends. And so that when she runs back, she probably has relationships. The trust has been built. So it is free and safe for her to run back and give a little God story right on the spot. I make that assumption when I read the text, but, but look again what she says, verse 39, just the one part there, the last part. He told me everything I did. That's her summary. That's her, that's her God story in that one sentence. He told me everything I did. Which I take to mean, oh my word, he knows all about me. The colored past, the confused 
confused presence. He knows the choices I've made. He understands what I struggle with. I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel condemned or punished or sent away. He listened to me. We had a conversation. I think he really cared about me. Oh, my word, a man who knew everything I did, which is probably what that sentence means. When Willow Creek ran this curriculum in their own church the first time, when they got to this lesson three, week three, they took an assignment as a church body to go home and everyone write their own God story, put in your own words, 100 words or less, what it is God means to you and does for you. And in their environment, it's very common to have a before and after, sort of a a bad person turns good, I was blind, now I see. And their stories all took, looked like that kind of a formula. But the point was, they gave attention to it. Let me, let me see what concepts I would come up with. What words do I use? Get it down to 100 words or less. Because sometimes when the question comes out, tell me about your God. And when everything's hanging in air, we don't say it so well. Especially if we have not thought it through. Bill Hybels gives some examples. If you're reading along in the book, one of the ones that is the most um, I identify with, and you probably will too, people who tell weird God stories. When they have the chance, they lead with the weird stuff rather than the good stuff. Hybels tells of a, a person in an airport. They were getting ready for a flight, but they were delayed, and there seemed to be one Christian who wanted to convert them all, apparently didn't recognize Hybels as a you know, fairly famous pastor. So he starts working on him, wants to introduce him to his God. And he, he says, I, I know my God so well. My God does the most amazing things with me. While well, I was having this dream the other night, and, and do you know what happened? God woke me up in the middle of the night, and I looked at the alarm clock, and it said, two, two, two. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Bill Hybels wondered. The man said, and then I went to bed the next night, and in sound asleep, my God spoke to me. God woke me up, and I looked at the alarm clock. It said, three, three, three. Isn't that profound? And then there was the third night I went to bed, and Bill interrupts and says, don't tell me the clock says four, four, four. Yes. So my God, incredible. Weird God stories. You have some, you people. I have a couple. They mean something maybe to me, and maybe once in a while it'll be safe to let them out in small circles, but it's not what we lead with, the weird God stuff. There are times when that question hangs in the air, and we have our moment of of entrance where what comes out of our mouth is borderline annoying even. It's not articulate, and it, it can be just a little irritating that the world wants to check out. I got this gift from my sister a couple of weeks ago. She was at a birthday party when she saw me give the family give a gift to a little toddler of a a little miniature accordion. But I ended up playing the thing instead of the kid. I thought it was so amazing. And my sister Bonnie went to the music store in Redlands and comes up with this old used accordion. Thank you. Don't, don't. This is good enough. Thank you. I was going to play it, but I'm watching the clock, you guys, and uh, I want to be really respectful. That's not fair. <laughs> Thank you. So I, 
I open up the recording, and, and it is absolutely amazing to me. Now, I, from the time I could walk, I picked up musical instruments, the harmonica, the recorder, the zither, the guitar, anything musical. I would put my hands on and just figure it out. And I, and I began working on this thing. And everyone in the house was watching, but except for Kirby over here. <laughs> and after a while, he said, that's uh, kind of annoying. Because nothing really good is coming out of it. I, have no, I don't know where the notes are except for the keyboard on the right-hand side. Who knows what all the rest of this stuff is? I don't have a clue. I don't have a fingering chart or anything. But I was having so much fun. And he said to me in the middle of the living room, is, is there any way you could play something that sounds like a song? And I said in such a confident fashion, what would you like to hear? Because I've now owned it five minutes. And he said, um, see, I'm just getting the idea that you move this thing back and forth. I'm getting, getting that idea. He said, I want to hear the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Can you help me? God, if you could come through, come through today. And I had a full chord on the keyboard and everything. I'm like, sweet. He says, you know, I'll make you a bet. Because uh, we were going to go to Disneyland and our season passes were expiring and he was sure Disneyland was closed and I was sure it was open. I'll make you a bet. If Disneyland, he said, I'm sure it's closed. If I win the bet, you will put that thing away for today. And I lost the bet. And I haven't played it much ever since. Luckily, we have the next generations who weren't in on the bed, and they could annoy him (laughs) with the same sounds. You know, it's interesting to me. What what can it do, and what can come out of it? And it's um, and it's fun, and it's creative, but it's annoying to a lot of other people. Until I figure out what to do with it, it's better to have the windows closed. And I am not sure as Christians, and especially those of us who are huddled together for the majority of our lives, I'm not sure we really thought, how does our God story come out of us? What does it sound like? Is it abrasive to the ear when people are listening? Is it sweet? Do they want more? Or would they say, we, it's enough now? Four things quickly to think about. When you tell your God story. And I recommend you try the 100-word exercise. I tried it this week. I think you could get it down underneath 100 words. Questions to ask. When you tell your God story, is it brief? People don't have a lot of time to listen. They check out. The longest prayer I ever heard was 25 minutes at a camp meeting. You know, 5, 10 minutes into it, you're done. You're done, and you have a person praying who wanted to be the preacher... And he didn't stop until the conference president just tugged his coat like this, you know? No one is listening. Make it brief 
and choose the words so that it counts. Is your God story brief? Is it clear? Have you landed on something that really matters? The Bible uses the word fuzzy. Sometimes we tell fuzzy stories. We speak all around it, but we never actually say, God made it possible that I'll live forever. Is it clear? Is it simple? Sometimes we use words that only we understand. Now, I'm not talking about the theologically laden terms. I just mean even inside language like the Spirit just kind of came upon me and wrapped around me, and it was so peaceful. And if you live out there in the world, you have no idea. Is that literal? Do I expect a physical sensation? What does that mean? We have to keep it simple. And finally, when you tell your God story, is it, and I'll wait, Brent, for you. Are you putting these up? No. Is it humble? Sometimes when we tell our story, we tell it with a lot of superiority, and we don't even hear it. Simple phrases like, I used to be a lot like you. But I hear this from us. And we think we're identifying with people. I used to be a lot like you. I know where you're coming from. Sounds superior. It doesn't feel good. When you tell your story, is it humble? Are there parts where, is there a time where you can say, and I'm still working on it? Don't have it all figured out. Keep it brief. Keep it clear. Keep it simple. Keep it humble. We want the people to come back and be able to say, I understood you last time. Let me hear a little more. The next time they come back, we can say a little more. It is an interesting concept, and I don't have time to go into it this morning, but in our world today, we have to learn to frame our conversations. In the current edition of Science Journal, the April edition, a fascinating conversation between scientists and communications experts who are trying to help scientists understand how to frame good science so the world will listen. Just take the climate change, for example. The problem used to be we didn't have any research on this topic. Now we have lots of research on the climate change, but what we don't have are people willing to listen to the message of good science because there are other realities operating in the world. When you poll people on this topic, it's right down political lines. Democrat, Republican. They're, everyone's reading the same research. And the conversation asks scientists to consider framing your information, your good science, in a way that speaks in the world where people have these other realities they've already bought into. Could it be for us in the Christian church even more so in a world that's so highly secular pluralistic and more and more polarized as the weeks and months go by. Is there a way I might have to frame my story so the world can hear, so that it makes sense to them? I wonder if there's another good reason for us to write our God stories down. This one is more self-serving as a church. When you write your story down, your faith story down, Something happens inside of you when you have to give voice and reflect and identify and try to express what it is. There's a process of maturing that happens on the inside. And for some of us born in the faith, we've never, never given voice to our God story because we're just with people like us all the time. 
It will mature you. It will mature us as a congregation if we paused and figured out our own God story. At some point, someone will ask you, tell me about your God. And the question is, how will you feel, fill that airtime? One of the things I hear from Adventist Christians is, well, it's kind of a plain, old, boring, vanilla, born in the church, died in the church version. There's a lot more interesting faith stories out there. And some of us have coveted that over the years, have you not? When you see someone come in who's gone through an amazing conversion, we all kind of, well, I'd like to be. I'd just like to ask you this morning before we leave, tell me what is ordinary and plain and mundane and predictable about the fact that, that you get up every morning and you go out into the world and attempt to make a positive difference, that every day you get up and, and attempt to live your life reflecting God. What is simple about that? What is ordinary about the fact that you have organized your life, your finances, your choice of spouse and career, and what you do with your time, that you've organized that around a good God? What is mundane about that? The fact that some of you are here and you're not sure about this God, even today, you wrestle and you hang on and you argue back and you're not convinced of a lot of things, but you don't leave somehow you are here. How is that the expected outcome? There is nothing simple about any of that. It's a Holy Spirit movement among church people. Don't ask, underestimate your God story. There are, right in front of me, evangelism experts for the Calamesa Church. Nobody can tell your story like you. Rick Perry and his wife Pam, who come to first service, were sharing with me that a couple weeks ago, Jesse, third grader at Mesa Grande, who's just here for the year, he came to Rick and said, Grandpa, tell me why you know there's a God. A child not raised in the faith tradition, but just here with us for the year. Grandpa, how do you know? Rick said, well, this is how I know. He pulled out the Bible and started in Genesis and said, the Bible says God created all of this. And, and look at the world around us, Jesse. Look at how beautiful God did that for us. That's how I know. And Jesse, with the wisdom of any age, said, but Grandpa... Why didn't God come up with a better ending to his story? What you do with the airtime, whether it's your own child or grandchild or it's out on the streets of Calamesa and Yucaipa, what we do with the airtime matters so much. You can handle all of that. Please don't call me and say, I need you to meet this person. That's not the answer. You have more power than anyone to influence the people in your life. Don't be afraid to step out with your God story. Let's pray. God, we're thinking about the variety of ways you're working among us. Thank you for these children we saw this morning and their families who are here. For the way you've led us in the past and you remain with us today and for your plans for our future, we say thank you. Give us the words to express this in our world. When somebody asks, 
Help us to tell this faith story that represents you well. With the power of your spirit, I ask for this. And in Jesus' name, amen.